Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Cowan's Intellectual Capital Podcast. I'm Larry Wiesneck, co-president of Cowan & Company. And once again, I'm joined by my good friend and former colleague, as well as current senior fellow at the Wharton School of Business, David Erickson. We're now almost halfway through 2021, which is pretty hard to believe. And today we're gonna to take a step back and discuss the process of going public as well as what we've seen in the market so far this year. I'm pleased to say we'll also be joined by a very special guest. Uh, please welcome my partner, Grant Miller, the, who is head of our global capital markets business here at Cowan & Company. Hi guys, great to join you. And I think it's been probably 15 years since we've all been together talking about similar themes when, when we're at Lehman. So good to join you guys again. Great to have you on board. And let me turn it over to David. Great, uh, thanks Larry. So, so let's start with the going public process. When you look back a year ago or 18 months ago, and I, and I think about my spring course last year at Wharton, and we talked about the going public process being really two primary ways. One was the traditional IPO process. And the second, which has been emerging in the recent years uh, is been direct listings. And since then, SPACs really exploded in a, in a significant way, especially for emerging growth companies. So now you have three paths. You have the IP, traditional IPOs, you have direct listings, and now it's combining with the SPAC. What do you think really caused this change? Well, David, I think uh, I, I have to start by just agreeing with you that I really do think uh, there are three paths, uh, and maybe I even throw in a fourth, theoretically, which has been around for a while as well, which is a reverse merger. So we've certainly seen companies do that as well. But I think right. in terms of the, now the primary paths, I think SPACs have taken their position. Uh, and if, if the last 18 months are of, of uh, any you know, directional import, I'd say SPACs have really become uh, you know, uh, a second choice, so to speak. There's, there's IPOs, there's SPACs, and then well behind that at the moment is direct listings, but may not always stay that way. Um, I think that 2020 um, does appear to have been a moment of a sea change for many things in the capital markets. And certainly the way you described it, kind of an explosion of SPACs is one of them. And um, I, I talked that up to maybe two or three themes. Uh, you know, the first is that uh, what we, saw in the volatility of the first half of last year when the pandemic first kicked in was that the concept of in a very, very challenging market, moving forward with committing to an IPO uh, in the many months that are involved in getting ready. And then the process, uh, which is still very similar in many respects to what the process was to do an IPO 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, um, was a bit less appealing uh, in, a, in a volatile market. Um, and what SPACs provide, and maybe Grant can get into more detail on this, is by the time it becomes known to the public that uh, a company is combining with a SPAC, um, the transaction has been 
significantly de-risked versus the IPO path. And I think that de-risking had significant value to companies considering going public during the most challenging parts of last year, so called the first half. What then happened was that many of the deals that came to market during that period also were solving big problems. And, and when I say big problems, I mean you know, situations like um, core infrastructure for the future of right. some of our important industries or changes that were happening. Um, those types of companies need a lot of capital and the revenues and the cash flows are way down the road. And um, you could build a business like that in the private market over a long time, doing multiple rounds or via SPAC, what was shown to be the way in the case is between a pipe and the capital that the SPAC brings to the table, they could secure multiple years worth of capital. And that became very alluring in these hyper growth opportunities and areas. And I think that they both converged in 2020 because um, during last year, uh, what we saw was the solutions to a lot of big problems um, were being created by the companies that needed capital and SPAC created a real vehicle there. But maybe I'll turn it over to Grant. Grant, I mean, you live this every day. Do you have a different read on it? No, I agree. Um, and maybe I'll just take a step back and just to set the stage in terms of these three you know, primary paths, they're not mutually exclusive in, in my mind. <clears throat> there are different reasons to go down the path. But when you talk about just the direct listings, there've only been, there's a lot of talk, there's only been two this year and about five um, or six over the last few years. Uh, IPOs have been, it's been a great year for IPOs, one of the best in 20 years, I, probably the most active in 20 years. There've been about 160 uh, traditional IPOs this year. And then when we talk about SPACs, I actually differentiate between the listings part of the market where these SPACs go public and start trading at 10. And then the second part, the D SPAC with actually the merger combinations. And so I think those two things sometimes can get conflated. And so with respect to the listings part, there are over 400 SPACs seeking targets. And by the way, I know about 300 that are publicly on file ready to get listed. But the more meaningful part of that market is actually who's closed business combinations. And this year, while there's been a lot of talk, there've only been about 40 business combinations that have been completed. And so this is a lot of what was gonna play out and we're just starting to to really see. But just in terms of what happened last year, the pipe market associated with SPACs um, was the big deal. And the the reason, my my view of why why this has happened is if you look at a lot of the SPAC targets, they've been high growth companies um, and very earlier stage in terms of revenue progression. Those are harder companies to take public because investors don't have as much time to really get under the weeds and understand the core business that they're laying out. In a pipe process, they can spend weeks and go into a data room and gain that conviction around an early stage company. And so you're right, by the time it gets announced, most often, over 90% of the time, that's, that's coincident with a pipe being announced with generally institutional investors that have done that work. Right. And so in my mind, it's really opened up a new area that hadn't really been there previously. So, so now, when you guys 
you guys talk to private companies every day, right? And with, as, as you said, Grant, the IPO market's been very robust this year uh, and the SPAC combinations have really slowed down a bit. How do you differentiate to the different, and they're all different, right? In terms of the private companies, how do you differentiate the three paths? So I would actually um, take a step back and just say, David, I think you have to throw in there as well, just doing another private round, right? right. Because going public is not the right answer for every company and certainly not at every point in their life cycle. And so um, our conversations really start uh, often earlier than how do I go public? It's let's, let's think about our strategy and how do we match our our financings and importantly, our ownership. Right. Uh, who should own and, us? And by the way, there's a lot of great private companies that will all will stay private. So you know, no question. Hundred percent. And so I would say that in we don't always get the opportunity to be involved that early, but when we are, um, I think the conversation really is, is very typical. Would be should I do a C round or something even later? You know, it could be should I raise a growth equity round and and bring in a new partner uh, to help me get to the next level? Or should I go down a path of going public? And that tends to be driven by more than anything else. Um, is, the, is the leadership team public company ready? Um, is the business one that will be a viable long-term public company? Because uh, you know, whether it be through a SPAC or an IPO or direct listing, that's literally the first half of the inning of inning one of the future as a public company. And so that's where a lot of the conversations that Grant and his team and the rest of our bankers right. have with folks. And what's interesting about SPACs in particular is SPACs often come out of a conversation about the quantum of capital one can raise in the private market. And is the SPAC path a better path? Because we tend to see more capital raised in the combination of the, the cash and trust from a SPAC and a pipe than we do in a typical IPO. So they're not even often the same companies. So again, I, I would ask Grant because Grant spends a lot of time on this, but we often will see it's a private path and or SPAC on one hand, and then it's an IPO uh, on the other. And very rarely is it IPO or SPAC. But again, Grant, why don't you yeah, well, I'll just, I mean, there's just that uh, in terms of direct listings, before I get to, the, to that, um, there are so far um, similarities in, in the folks that, that want to go to a direct listing and, and rationale for it. So when we ask clients, you know, what are you trying to achieve? Now, the rules have recently changed where you can actually ra raise primary proceeds in direct listing. That has not happened yet. Um, so by and large, those are much larger companies. Those companies are, are well known to the general public and have a, have a following in and of themselves and uh, don't have a so far a need for, for a primary. So I think that in at least in the near term, I think that's going to be a consistent theme um, in large part because direct listings have a harder time to get to know and the investors really a lot of institutional investors and vice versa. So I think that that process is, is, is best suited, I think right now for large companies. And the difference between the, the SPACs and the, and the IPOs, Larry, I think you're 100% right. We've seen so many situations where we're just talking to a company about their capital needs. And oftentimes that will start as a 
later stage private or crossover that then goes in one or multiple directions. And oftentimes what we saw more, most recently is that leading to SPACs and then the, the pipes associated with those SPACs. Um, with, and with IPOs, it's, it's generally speaking more, more of a um, process that's undertaken um, and that preparation will, will go towards that. I, we haven't yet seen many companies kind of go down what I would say a dual path, traditional IPO and SPAC IPO. Uh, but that may emerge uh, as, a, as a trend um, given the, how many seeking SPACs there are and, and how aggressive I, I'm right. finding they're going to become. It, it, Greg, you bring up a great point, and, and maybe Dave, we can get into this later. But um, what I think is how, you know, th this concept of dual path, which historically was viewed as you file your IPO publicly and you thereby kind of get the potential M&A buyers to come forward to try and jump in before you might move forward with your IPO. That, that is a tried and true path. Very, you know, not every company goes down that path, but there's certainly enough that say, let's use the IPO filing as a way to do a last check to determine whether there's a, a better strategic deal. When we see a dual path in the SPAC arena, it's, it's a company that has a, a slightly different thought process. What they really want to do is, is keep those, all those conversations private longer. And so they might be looking at an M&A alternative to a SPAC, but they view it all as under, that's a private approach because you don't have a public filing in a, in a SPAC combination until the transaction has basically been fully um, committed to by the pipe investors, et cetera. So one is a public dual path and the other is a private dual path, which again, wasn't really something we saw until say 18 months ago. Right. And now we're, we're, we're seeing quite a bit. So, um, so, so Grant, I, I want to touch on something you said about the direct listings for larger companies. And, and this goes to a conversation I had uh, this week with a, a, a director of a, a lead independent director of a large Decacorn private company. So worth privately more than $10 billion in equity value. And he was saying, you know, we've raised a lot of cash and we've gotten approached by a number of SPACs. Uh, we don't want that dilution. So we're just going to go via direct listing. That's all, the only thing on the table. Um, and it's, to now it's been for larger companies. Do you see that uh, the direct listing path starting to emerge, especially with, as you mentioned, the New York Stock Exchange rule about being able to raise primary capital. Do you think that's going to start to emerge for smaller and middle middle uh, sized companies? So we've had a number of conversations about it. Although for what I call um, kind of the smaller and mid cap IPO sizes, right. mid cap, we don't hear it as often. And I, I think that's really due to what, what was just touching on before, which is the need to build a shareholder base. Many of these very large private companies often have it or don't really need it for future growth and access to the capital markets. And so the direct listing path isn't as well suited in my view to be able to establish those long-term relationships along the way. And so, as, so when we talk to clients, we ask, what's, how do you define success in getting public? And if it's, um, lack of, you know, don't need primary capital immediately. And there's sellers that, that want to come out, which is going to be an important part of it. 
Indirect listing is would be is a, is an ideal uh, scenario for it. Um, but for many of our, you know, we do a lot of disruptive companies. That's kind of what we spend our time on with our IPOs. It's not as well suited for those, and so. I think the jury's out, but I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised to see a similar to, to the client, you, you know, the folks you were talking to, right. that kind of, you know, 10 billion plus type of um, companies continue that path. And those that are more growth oriented that are earlier, consider the traditional in this background. So now with something like 420 SPACs or north of 400 SPACs out there looking for a private company to acquire, and with the SEC having raised more questions in the last couple of months about, you know, disclosure and things like that, the smack market, as you mentioned, this, the combinations have really slowed down considerably in the last few months, as well as some of the IPOs. How do you see that market evolving over the next several months? What are you telling clients today? Well, I think it's going to be an incredibly interesting three months. More, I mean, and, and, um, uh, I guess it's a capital markets person to get excited by these things, but th there's uh, we're going to see closing start at a rapid pace. So you're 100% right. The SEC slowed things down with additional disclosure and some changes in, in warrant treatment, and most of those are now done. And so by the process that have been filed, we're anticipating a just a torrential uh, wave of closings. So I, mo I, I mentioned that there have been um, you know, 40 or so, maybe 45 closings so far. Over the next three months, we're in, and that's year to date, we're anticipating 80 closings in the next few months. Wow. And so we've already started seeing like one closing per day start to click off. And that's very, so all the action is just starting to happen now in terms of what do redemption levels look like? Because, you know, a few months ago, a lot of these SPACs were trading well above trust value into the close. And so redemptions were low. That is no longer the case. Most 80% of these uh, announced deals are trading within 5% of trust value. And so the jury is out in terms of where redemptions are really going to be. And so all the juice is, is just starting to unfold. And there are a couple of think, important things to, to think about. Um, in, and by the way, just the most recent data set, which is not that large, but I'll reflect on it anyway, uh, the last eight combinations that have closed, seven of them are trading very well, well above trust. One is slightly below. So the very early data is that there's this is the, the market is uh, functioning like we see. And by the way, um, as we go forward, the other real critical piece is not just the closings, because that's important, but because each of these deals had a pipe associated with it, the vast majority, that pipe liquidity is not on the market yet. It generally takes about six weeks for those pipes to get registered. And so the key will be looking at some of these closings to start to roll out. And then the liquidity events for the pipe investors who have been handcuffed for five months as right. the SEC has gone through this stuff. So um, great question. Um, and it's going to be very important to see how these start to roll out and how they start to trade. And I think it's a very different dynamic than the, the, the front end listings, which I can also uh, comment on with interest. Any additional thoughts? On yeah, well, I just want to make sure we cover, there were, your question had two parts to it. And one was implicit was the discussion about the SEC being more focused on this. I think, uh, I think the SEC has a, it's not just the SEC. I think the regulatory environment is something right. that re really is behind a lot of what 
it will drive the SPAC market long-term and has driven it. My starting point is, uh, I said earlier that SPACs are an, evol an evolutionary product that I didn't get into is, you know, SPACs have been around since the 1990s. Right. But yet in the last few years, they've really taken off. Right. And that was your question about why the last year and a half. But um, the IPO process that we live in today with only modest changes is the same as it was after the 33, 34 and 40 act came out. Right. And so the regulators have a huge role here because what SPACs are actually providing and direct listings in some respect are solutions to challenges of the we'll call the modern capital markets that the IPO process really hasn't caught up with. So we encourage you know, the, the work of uh, the SEC and others to think through the overall process, and in particular, to stay focused on you know, what the capital markets are all about, which is the capital markets are there to provide access to capital uh, for the companies, and then for investors to provide a safe environment for them to invest. Um, but what we can't legislate against is risk and return. And so no different than if it's an IPO, a direct listening or a SPAC, when a company has higher growth potential, they're gonna have usually greater risk. And we just have to make sure we don't legislate against people being able to price that risk and determine they wanna buy businesses that are more stable or those more risky. And again, our capital markets provide opportunity to both so it's just, I think, an important point to keep in mind as we go through this. I think the other thing that Grant can highlight is while we have seen many early stage and growthy companies come to the SPAC market, the SPAC market is broad, just like the IPO market. We've also seen an enormous amount of cash flowing and relatively stable companies that also have used the SPAC market. And so it's gotten so large that it's almost impossible what we're trying to help in this conversation, describe the IPO market or the SPAC market. Right. Because they're really all sub-markets based on sector, stage of company, et cetera. But anyway, I, I think um, th that's what's so interesting about these developments with as many deals getting done as there have been. Right, so let's hone in on the traditional IPO market for a second. Um, as you guys have both said, it's been pretty robust this year. It's continued in a very robust fashion really over the last two years, uh, despite the pandemic uh, or uh, since the pandemic, I should say. Um, what Are there any sweet spots in the market today? Um, and how, how do you expect the IPO market to really uh, continue on as we go to the balance of the year? Grant, why don't you take that first? Sure. There's been a little bit of a, of a pause just recently, but the activity level is picking up in a very material way. So the first quarter was the best quarter for IPOs in 20 years. So it has been, it's been torrential. Um, and, and this is, goes back to the first comment. There's great IPOs and they're great SPAC combinations. I actually have a hard time differentiating them. I differentiate more on the type of company and what's going and what they're going after. So what I see in the traditional IPO market is the earlier stage companies, those that don't have as much predictability and revenue and EBITDA, et cetera, um, uh, to be uh, really strong in the traditional IPO market, more in the life sciences area. Right. So that's a third of the IPO market this year so far. Yeah. And the two thirds are um, people who are paying for growth growth and disruption where it can be predictable. And so that is really the, the, the parts of the market that have been so, so strong. 
And it's almost the exact, interestingly, the exact inverse in the SPAC parts of the market. And so as I look at it and I define quote unquote early stage, I look at companies that are predicting more than 50 million of revenue for forward year as more established. The split on those established versus non-established is almost exactly the same, SPAC or IPO. The difference is the industries. So all, basically most of the non-established companies in the traditional IPO market go the way uh, for bi biotechs go, go to traditional. All of the really innovative companies that are more industrial based, which you've seen a lot of, go right. to the SPAC market. And so I see that continuing for the reasons of capital formation that as the companies have grown up privately, there's a great ecosystem in life sciences that can continue to IPO. It hasn't been there for a lot of the disruptive industrial, industrial tech companies. And that's why I think some of the rationale for why companies are choosing one path versus the other. But I think those, the, the, those, the, those trends, I think are very well established and I, I don't see them necessarily changing. Larry? Yeah, I, I think uh, I totally agree with Grant. The, the one thing that I would just say being totally practical is that all else constant, I still believe that from a standpoint of panache, standpoint of branding, the standard IPO process is probably still kind of the number one path that people use. Right. I think that SPACs have become 1A, if you want to think of it that way, because more and more very, very strong companies with great brands have been choosing to go the SPAC path but it's still a situation where when people start thinking about SPACs, it's usually one of these, hmm, hadn't really thought about that. No, it's gotten more attractive, but so it's always a but. And so people have to think through the pros and cons. And then direct listings, other than for those that are really driven by uh, their owners, and oftentimes the venture capitalists who, who feel that, again, for the right type of situations, the company can go public. Direct listings is a distant, I don't even think they're number two. It's like, if you could distance it, you go one, one A and four or five, it's way down the list. Right. So that's just where we've gotten to at the moment. Um, the, I do wanna make a point though about the, the distinctions in one way that we haven't talked about yet, which is Grant talked about um, having your shareholder base and selecting your shareholder base. Um, I want to point out that most companies, so another way of describing it is in different words, most companies have stories that for the introduction need to be sold. Meaning that not everyone comes to market where the whole world knows who they are. And particularly if it's a business to business story as opposed to a retail story. So I guess I'd say is it's not just the brand, it's that your brand is known in retail because direct listings tend to really more, more often than not get taken over by the retail bid very quickly. Whereas your standard IPO or SPAC has a very good balance between institutional investors and retail. And if one's looking for the institutional backing where you know who your shareholders are, uh, you know that they're there for the long-term, that is a real distinguishing for the company and their shareholders as to selecting direct listing or one of the other alternatives. It really comes down to do you care about the quality of your shareholder base? If yes, you want to help shape it. 
if on the other hand, you think that's less important, then you have, you go direct listing because you have less control over your shareholder base in a direct listing. Right. So, uh, you know, as you guys look to the balance of the year, right. And as you think about your pipelines, uh, or your, your, excuse me, your pipeline, the Cowan pipeline and, and what you know about what's going on in the market, obviously, how do you, how do you see that, uh, changing? Um, how do you see that changing if at all, uh, Grant, in, in terms of the mix that you talked about, um, as yeah, you so, think about the balance, sorry. So I, I, th I think that the um, I think the thing that will change, I think it's going to be more in the SPAC market than the traditional IPO market, because that is really, as Larry suggested, not changed that dramatically over this period of time. Is something else we, also was just mentioned the the impact of retail investors. So we were at a period of time when deals were getting announced and they were flying based on retail demand, which you can't really control and really hasn't been a part of the capital markets really for 20 years in terms of a, of a, of a strong impact. That is by a large part gone away. And so now what we're gonna be looking at is these companies that are merging with SPACs having to come back to the reality of where an institution will price it. And we're seeing that change real time so that the core institutions will find a price that they, they feel very good get going into in, in a major way. And so that is going to be, in my view, what's going to be happening. Now, first, as I mentioned, what I think I mentioned, there are 150 announced SPACs that need to close. So we're seeing 80 of those in the next few months. The whole story and what's going to happen is how that unfolds. And so it's very hard to see around the corner when you have the, these these very large number of deals that need to get the right. Before we go, we've talked about the IP traditional IPOs. We've talked about SPACs. We've talked about the pipe market. We talked about direct listings. I know the convertible market has also been very attractive thus far this year uh, for many companies, even with volatility coming down at least market wide. What has caused this, and how do you think that's going to continue to evolve over the next few months? So it's been um, it's been unbelievable. Last year was a great year. Uh, first quarter was, was uh, best on record. Returns. I'll go. You know, this the simple capital markets answer is that uh, convertible investors are making money, and there's more capital in the convertible market than there ever has been. Wow! And so it is amazing. And so uh, you know, you you see folks. Actually, there's one direct listing. Uh, they did a direct list and they came back right to the convertible market um, just a few, you know, a few months later. Coinbase. Yeah, that's a yeah. really interesting case study. So they, they were, didn't have to get the, go through an SEC registration. They did it once before. And they're able to actually get a fair amount of primary proceeds at um, 50 basis points up 55. And they actually, and they actually enhanced that. Yeah, um, very, very attractive financing for them. No question. So, it's, so to think about that, as an alternative is incredible. It, it, and to the, to the extent that I see that slowing, I, I don't. Um, the, the terms are too good for, for issuers and convertible investors are, are, are making um, good returns on them. So that's the, the, the sign of a really well-functioning market. Larry, I'm gonna take you back to your roots. Thoughts on the convertible market? I think what's interesting about what's been happening with convertibles is the market has realized uh, once again, the inherent flexibility that comes from having a security with downside protection for the investor, uh, some you know, upside participation, and thereby 
it changes the risk return both for the investor and for the issuer. And um, when markets get choppier, uh, usually um, people look for different alternatives. And so I'll just go to one of the newest developments that to me, I wouldn't have anticipated, but should have anticipated, is the beginning of the use of convertibles to help actually companies who are doing SPACs meet the minimum cash condition. Right. Um, right. Should have anticipated it. It's like the conversion of financial engineering in multiple ways. Uh, but I think that's really interesting because what it highlights is that um, there's more than one way to skin the cat. And uh, I think that's what we're seeing. The only thing that will change this, and again, I don't see this around the corner, even though I know some people do, is if interest rates were to significantly rise, um, there'll be a little bit of a bump in the road as it relates to the amount of convertible issuance, because clearly as rates go up, it resets what the value, what the structure would look like, et cetera. Um, but I will just say that it would require a significant increase in rates before we see a drop in convertible issuance, because most likely that'll be um, matched with an increase in volatility. And so the increased volatility would offset the increase in base rates. So anyway, um, uh, thank you for bringing that up because I think it's uh, something for us to watch and maybe in six months from now, we can, this group get the group back together again and see you know, what, what happened in the intersection between convertible SPACs and IPOs. So. Right, right, exactly. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. It was great to see you both after all this time. Uh, thanks, Grant, for stopping by. It was a pleasure chatting with you guys. Love talking capital markets with capital markets, guys. <laughs> well, I'll just say once again, David, thank you for uh, being our partner in these conversations. It's really, really uh, both fun and I think informative. Uh, this one, uh, we could have gone on for hours. Uh, and, I, and so I look forward to, uh, as part of the series, maybe bring Grant back in again, as I said, in a few months to get an update. Maybe we can talk about what happened to his predictions about the IPO market and the SPAC market as we see more of these deals roll off. I wasn't predicting. So, so <laughs> I, I know. No, you were you you were you you were highlighting. You weren't predicting, right? Uh, and so uh, we look forward to having you back. And uh, I thank everyone for listening, and look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights. <laughs>